Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party. My name is Remy Ramirez, and I'm your host as we delve into all the things that you would rather pretend aren't really happening within your own self. Doesn't that sound fun? So grab a beer, baby, toss that popcorn, and uh, I don't know, pull that sequin bra top out of the back of your closet because we're getting into it. This week, we're talking about growing up around people who have borderline personality disorder. And I wanted to pause because that may sound like a very small portion of the population, but actually BPD is way more common than people realize. It just goes super undiagnosed because many people who have BPD by definition of their disorder, aren't willing to see a therapist about it. So that's one thing. Another thing about it is that one of the most common symptoms of BPD is unpredictable rage or rage that doesn't make sense. Like, for example, a massive rage meltdown over not being able to return a lamp when the receipt for the lamp clearly states that it's non-refundable, which my mom definitely did one time. That, um, that rage or defensiveness also pops up anytime there's a hint of criticism toward the person with BPD. And by the way, by hint of criticism, I mean, even something like, hey, that hurt my feelings or, hey, I think you forgot that it's your turn to do the dishes even something as small as that could result in a rage meltdown or intense defensiveness or defensiveness, um, or something that I like to call gaslighting, which I also like to call lying. So all of these things, the rage, the defensiveness, the lying are also common in lots of other isms or disorders. Bipolar disorder is one alcoholism, of course, drug addiction. And on that note, people with BPD often have addiction issues. So you may think the root issue in a person is their drinking or using, but it may actually be BPD, or maybe it really is just purely addiction, but the abuse looks very similar to the abuse you might experience from people who have BPD, in which case this combo today could definitely help you. Another reason why I think a conversation around BPD is super important is that BPD and narcissism are interlinked. So from what I understand, people with BPD always have some level of narcissism as part of their disorder. So a lot of people see narcissistic qualities in a person and assume that they're pure narcissists when actually they might have BPD. So anyway, that's kind of an overview. And to help us make sense of this disorder and give us a window into healing the effects of being raised around it, or even encountering it later in life, I'm so excited to welcome therapist, writer, and spiritual mentor, Liz Hummer. Hey, Liz. Hey, Remy. Thanks for having me. Oh my God. Welcome on. I'm so happy <laughs> you're here. And please tell us your sun, moon, and rising signs. Sure. Yeah. So I am a Sagittarius sun and I'm a double Gemini rising and moon. Yeah. So <laughs> I like to talk. Three. 
Yeah, yes. I like to talk a lot about big ideas and that's right. Yeah, <laughs> big ideas and feelings. Yes. Yeah. So I am uh Sag Sun Libra Moon Gemini rising. So um even right. though, yeah, even though our moons aren't the same, we both have air moons and we have everything else the same. So we're kind of the same person in a lot of ways. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> we're gonna be like talking over each other, like it feels funny to say that, like, I'm excited to talk about BPD, but that's, I also have Jupiter and Scorpio. So I like to go oh. into the depths. So. Yes. Okay. Well, I have um, Venus and Scorpio. So um, we're fucking doing it. Yeah. I'm so pumped yeah. to talk to you. You and I had a super cool, but kind of brief convo about this a couple of weeks ago. And you mentioned then that you also grew up with a parent who had BPD and that that was a huge part of why you became a therapist. So I'm super excited to hear about that and talk to you about your healing process. I'm going to dive into my experience growing up around BPD. You can totally jump in anytime you want, or you can just like fucking chill super hard, crack open a cold one, whatever, totally up to you. Either way at the end, I have some questions to dive into with you. So how does that sound? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Tight. Okay. Here we go. So both my parents have BPD. And I'll start on the lighter side of my trauma experience, my diet trauma. When I was about 14, my sister came home late one night from a friend's house. She was 16. It was a school night and my mom was asleep. At that time, we lived in an apartment building and our unit was in the middle of all the other apartments. It was like the one middle unit. Anyway, my sister came home and we started talking and she asked me to dye her hair. So of course I was like, fuck yeah, let's give you those red highlights. This was 96 or 97 when everyone was dyeing their hair red because, Oh yeah. You know, my so-called life, my so-called life, Tori Amos. (laughs) Yes. All the fucking things. So we're in the bathroom, dyeing her hair and talking shit and laughing. And my mom comes in fucking furious, teeth clenched, screaming about how the bathroom window is open and the whole apartment building can hear us and what the fuck are we doing and on and on. Which, by the way, if you're worried about us making too much noise for the neighbors, screaming about it at the top of your lungs, probably not the best solution. But again, BPD rage rarely makes sense. And my sister and I, we just watch her do this for a minute or two. And then we just burst into laughter, like side splitting laughter because she looks ridiculous. And it's like, yeah, okay, let's just close the fucking window, dude. Like really doesn't have to be a level 10 situation. But anyway, our, our laughter frustrates my mom so much that she just slams the bathroom door in our faces and goes back to bed. And we were like, cool. Sounds good. And we just kept dying my sister's hair till we were done. And that was that. And she looked fucking great. So <laughs> That's one rare moment when I've been able to laugh in the face of that kind of rage, but there have been far more moments that were not funny to me, especially when I was younger. So what did it look like when we were younger? Well, there are lots of examples with both my parents, like seriously, wow, so many, but, but here are a few to kind of help paint a picture. Once when I was eight, I misplaced a $10 bill that I'd earned babysitting And by the way, I like to pause and add in a what the fuck asterisk here, like an eight-year-old babysitting, but (laughs) whatever, it was the 80s. And when I told my dad that I couldn't remember where I'd put it, he raged at me so hard that I completely dissociated, like 
ceased to be in my body and nearly fainted. Another time he raged while we were on a road trip because I had to pee and we had to pull over. There was another time when my little brother put on a shirt that was too big for him. And my dad got right in his face, pointing his finger between my brother's eyes and screaming that my brother was a piece of shit for putting on a shirt that was too big. On my mom's side, one time when I was about four, I remember my mom screaming that she'd wish she'd never had kids. And she was like, as she was doing this, she was like kicking the wall and slamming her head against the wall. There was uh, the time I mentioned at the top when I was probably 10 and I went with my mom to return a lamp. And when we got there, the dude at the counter pointed out that the receipt clearly stated that the lamp was non-refundable and my mom absolutely lost her shit. Uh, just like screaming, which was super embarrassing for me because the entire store went silent. Like every single eye was on us, but I was a child. So I just had to stand there and wait. So that like embarrassment being embarrassed by the behavior of the people with BPD um, is also a big part of the trauma. On that note, there was also a time she drove me to drill team camp out in the woods and we got lost for a minute. And that made her so mad that when she dropped me off, she screamed at my drill team coach in front of all the other drill team girls, which was like fucking mortifying. So the rage was obviously a big thing. But there was another aspect of it, which I didn't see with my dad, but it was a big part of my mom's behavior. And that was, especially when we were little, she would be fine. Then she would rage out of nowhere. Then she would sob and tell us she was so sorry. And then she would be fine again. And all of that would happen in the course of about an hour or maybe even less. So it was this massive flux of emotion that would come in like a tornado and then disappear in a very short amount of time, which by the way, is one of the key ways you differentiate BPD from bipolar disorder. The BPD emotional cycle happens really fast. Whereas someone with bipolar disorder will be manic for a week or a month and then depressed for a a week or a month or whatever. Like they don't cycle within a day. So Anyway, when I was young, and I'm detailing this in case anyone can relate or in case it's helpful, I would feel this incredible relief when my mom would get to the part where she said she was sorry. And as a result of that happening over and over when I was little, as a young adult, like fast forward 10, 20 years, especially in dating, when guys would do fucked up shit, but then cry and say how sorry they were after, I would immediately experience that same sense of relief washing over me. And I would forgive them on the spot without any boundaries or conversations around the situation because I later realized I'd been sort of programmed to have enormous anxiety during conflict and feel this rush of I am safe when the other person started crying and apologizing, even if that wasn't really the case, even if the situation was still pretty much fucked. But yeah, isn't it, isn't it weird how like that, that felt like love to you probably. Yes. Right. Because we learn what love is from our parents. Right. Yeah. So you're like, okay, this is loving me, like getting mad and then apologizing and like, sweet, I'm loved. Right. Oh my God. That is such a huge piece of this is like, I don't know how love is supposed to work. Yeah. You've got like, you've got to recalibrate your relational patterns. Yeah. Big time. That storm you lived in all the time. Right. Yes. Oh my God. Thank you for that piece. Yes. That's huge. So yeah, I, yeah. And I want to be clear that like, you know, 
this wasn't all of my childhood. This wasn't the only, these weren't the only moments my childhood was made of. There were also really beautiful moments and sweet moments, but this erratic behavior in the adults around me was a significant part of my childhood that had a significant impact on how I've shown up in the world. Interestingly, there's a more recent example. And I say interestingly, because it was a helpful gauge for me as an adult navigating the effects of BPD. So this was probably about maybe seven or eight years ago. I was in my thirties and my mom had been having some health issues. And I suggested we go to this beautiful outdoor hot spring spa that I'd heard about a couple hours from her house. And when we got there, it wasn't clear right away if we'd be able to park at the top of this big hill that the hot spring was on, or if we'd have to park at the bottom and walk up the hill. And when we were driving around for a minute, trying to figure it out, she fucking lost it. And again, just screaming in the car with the windows up. So it was like, and when I say screaming, I don't mean like kind of yelling or shouting. I mean like screaming in a car with the windows rolled up. And I was so triggered by this that as soon as we got to the spa, I found a bathroom and sobbed for like 10 minutes straight at the time. I didn't fully understand why I was sobbing, but I'd had enough healing work by then to know that if you need to cry, you figure out a way to do it. You know, like you don't fucking hold it in, pretend like you're chill. Oh yeah. And when I got out of the bathroom, my mom, who apparently could hear me crying the whole time said something along the lines of, why did you just make such a big deal out of nothing? You should be so embarrassed. People could hear you. <laughs> and that the irony. Yeah. Right. And that is the narcissism part. Like in relationships with people who have BPD, there's tons of room for their huge feelings and emotional needs, but there's no room for yours. And there's little to no accountability for the way their behaviors impact the people around them. So I'm going to pause here and kind of sort through this shit for a minute because there are layers of trauma here. So let's name them. Number one, the first one that I kind of wanted to call attention to is that you start to understand, especially if you're raised by a parent with BPD, that your needs don't matter. It's their needs that matter. If you can make sure they stay happy or at least copacetic, then you get to be safe. And that, my friends, is the sweetest and most savory recipe for codependence and people pleasing. You know, just mm -hmm. throw that baby in the oven and watch it rise. Number two is that when you can't fix their problems for them, because, you know, like BPD rage is unpredictable and it's often nonsensical. As a child, especially, you feel like there's something deeply wrong with you because you can't fix it and you can't prevent it from happening. It doesn't occur to you as a child that maybe your fucking parents, the center of your universe are afflicted with a personality disorder, right? Like, no, mm -hmm. you're defective. You're unlovable. You'll never be good enough. And those mantras, whatever they end up looking like for you will haunt you and your relationships, like a horny little ghost that won't fucking leave you alone until you like, <laughs> I don't know, call the ghostbusters to bring that metaphor full circle, but like the ghostbusters who trap yourself defeating belief ghosts. Number three, you walk on eggshells constantly because you just don't feel safe. And by the way, not feeling safe is a profound and deep and ubiquitous result of being raised around BPD. You feel terrified and humiliated if you make a mistake. So there can be a lot of perfectionism that shows up. 
And that means you probably will attract romantic partners, or I don't want, I don't want to say probably there's a good chance you might attract romantic partners into your life, especially early on in your life before you've had healing who tell you that you're not good enough and you're not perfect enough. And another part of that could be that, and this has been a thing for me that you're afraid of authority. Like a few years ago, I was pulled over for speeding and I was so flooded with fear. I got a ticket and I was so flooded by this experience that I sobbed for hours, (laughs) like literally six hours, not because of the money. I mean, which I wasn't stoked on, but because my brain had been programmed to believe that authority figures mad at me means that my world is crumbling. Number four, you doubt yourself constantly. So one trait of people with BPD is an inability to hold themselves accountable, which means they'll often gaslight. If you confront them about broken promises, broken agreements, boundary violations, even if you do it in a totally respectful way. And the result is that as an adult, you don't feel confident in your perspective because you were told so often that actually they weren't the problem. You were the problem. And what do those combos look like? They can look like you're too sensitive. You're controlling. You have issues. You need help. Those are some common responses from people with BPD who have essentially been called out on their actions. Number five is something I recently learned about called learned helplessness. So they did this awful, awful experiment back in the day with dogs where they put dogs in a cage with the top of the cage open and they would send electric shocks through and the dogs would leap out of the top of the cage, obviously, but then they closed the top of the cage and sent the shocks through. And of course the dogs initially just freaked out, but eventually they became despondent and depressed. And at that point they reopened the top of the cage, but when they would send the shocks through now with the top of the cage open, the dogs wouldn't leap out anymore. And what they learned was that this is, this is something called, um, learned helplessness where after being in a situation where they felt hopeless for so long, they had literally learned to practice hopelessness. So there are two things I want to say about that. Other than the obvious fact that cruelty to animals is fucked and not okay. The first one is that, um, when I, that time when I was crying in the bathroom at the spa with my, you know, and my mom could hear me, my mom's rage would, it would send me in like, okay, let me back up. I didn't understand at the time why it was happening. Like, I didn't know why I had this massive, um, emotional response that put me in the bathroom for like 10, 15 minutes. But what I realized is my mom's rage would send me into such a state of anxiety and fear and panic. And I'd learned that it was a hopeless situation because nothing I'd ever done in my life to try to fix it could control or quell her rage. And the sobbing was the despair around that. But it was only much later that I connected with that. So that's one, that's kind of an example of what that learned, uh, helplessness Mm -hmm. might look like. Number two is that as a result of being raised in the chaos of BPD in general, outside of my relationships with my mom, my dad, I, I go so quickly to despair. And when I met with challenges, instead of becoming solution oriented, by the way, I'm getting much better at this, but 
especially like in my twenties, this, this was definitely the case instead of becoming solution oriented or like looking on the bright side or like whatever the fuck, you know, healthy people do my go-to has been to feel super powerless. And this is big for a lot of reasons, but also because researchers have found that the number one determining factor for a, you know, quote unquote successful life, I don't actually know how they define success, but by their terms, a successful life is resilience. And it's like not intelligence. It's not like, you know, being good socially or whatever it's resilience. It's knowing you're going to be okay. Even when things are hard, are hard. Yeah, exactly. Which is like the opposite, the exact opposite of learned helplessness. Right. Yeah. Well, there's, I feel like I ask, do you feel like I always had this sense that I was doomed? Like there's something about when you have a parent that you never see able to like um, have agency and navigate the world in a secure way. Like they always feel like everything's a threat. Yes. Like you're, you don't have an example and somehow it feels like you've inherited this destiny. Yes. So like, why even try or like, you know, I think that's, that's tapping into that same thing that learned helpless, helplessness of like, I often would fantasize about having like a dad that was just so confident and like steady in the world and like how I would probably have felt more confident. Yes. early on instead of having to work so hard to develop it myself. Yeah. When example. I was like from, I want to say 12 to 14, maybe I went hard on the Mormon friends. <laughs> I was like, show me what they have the answers. <laughs> yeah. Well, because, well, yeah. because their but parents that's what were, it felt like. Yeah. Yeah. It's like their parents were so calm. They never screamed. Like they had a community that seemed really calm and happy around them. Like, and this, that's one example, but many, many times throughout my life, I've kind of like tried to move in with other families (laughs) because I was just like, I, I exactly what you're talking about. I'm looking for a different way. Yeah. And it's not, it's not happening here. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's not happening here. Yeah. That's such a great, that's such a great point. And the other part of this for me is that like learned helplessness often leads to suicidal ideation, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you're in a lot of pain and you really believe that there's no hope, you look at suicide, like, yo, I know of a way I could get off this fucking bus. So I really want to underscore this part of the equation because identifying and healing learned helplessness is so, so, so big for those of us who grew up in chaotic environments. Okay. So that's some of the stuff. And now I want to just like go through briefly what some of the healing has looked like for me. Okay. Oof. The major part of my healing was allowing myself to have my anger, my anger back and allowing myself to have boundaries because there was absolutely no room to be mad in my house growing up. My parents could be mad all day long and for absolutely, absolutely no good reason, but we certainly were not allowed to have anger. So identifying when anger was coming up for me and then understanding that anger comes up to show me when someone has violated my boundary, that's been super helpful, but it's been tricky too, right? Because I watched anger being modeled in a way that like was not fucking appropriate. So I definitely never wanted to do, um, what I saw my mom doing, which was essentially being irresponsible with anger. Mm -hmm by lashing out when people didn't deserve it. 
But the other side of that was just like suppressing rage, which also very clearly wasn't working. It was like, there wasn't a model, you know, I did, I could, I was suppressing, she was lashing out. My dad was lashing out. And so I had to figure out this middle ground and learning to have those scary conversations and letting people know that I was upset has been super important, important and fucking terrifying for me at times, because it was so like you were entering the fucking danger zone in my house. If you expressed anything that was not approval of my parents. So sometimes the best way for me to navigate anger has been in letters so that, well, number one, so that I didn't cry because anger was so foreign to me that it would make me burst into tears. And also two, um, because with letters I could, I could say everything I had to say without being irresponsible. Like I could, uh, I had more control, uh, which to me is like, you know, being irresponsible is, is engaging in anger. That's not appropriate to the situation, which by the way, doesn't mean being nice. You know, sometimes being very fucking clear about your anger is the move. Um, but yeah, letters have give have been a great tool for me in practicing responsible anger. That's responsible to me and like my truth and responsible to the other person also, so that I'm not lashing out. I love that so much. I mean, I think wait, you're, it's like such a great way of practicing regulation, which is the core of what you're saying, like that middle ground, you know, we don't, you grow up in a house that our parents are pretty dysregulated because they didn't learn that with their parents, you know? And so we have to take responsibility and get help for learning that. And then, um, you know, it's a lot of that means taking space, reflecting and like writing is such a wonderful way of of practicing that before maybe you have the courage to say it face to face because that's a lot more activating. Oof, girl. You know? <laughs> so yeah, activating. I mean, I still, I mean, it's a lifelong journey. It sure know? is, girl. Yeah. So girl, like, I love that you're new in the canyon, lifelong Ooh. journey, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I love that you're like giving that like sort of a step by step, like, hey, like if that feels too scary to name your boundaries and to own your anger like put it in writing first, put it in writing and maybe don't ever even show it for the first yeah. step. Right. Yeah, like totally like baby steps, baby they're steps. All, yeah. They're all making a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Another huge one has been slowly learning to regard my sensitivity with kindness and reverence. Um, like yes. I mentioned, I was often told by my family that I was too sensitive And that became a huge part of my self-defeating self-talk and eventually of my suicidal ideation, because I would say things to myself, like you're not strong enough for this world. This world is too mean for you and you can't handle it and you'll never find happiness here. And that is super fucking dangerous self-talk, dude, like not helpful. And as a result of that, for years, I surrounded myself with people who also told me I was too sensitive because that's what I knew. It's what I'd been told. And it's what I thought was true. But when I started loving myself, which I actually kind of hate when people are like, Oh, you just have to learn to love yourself. Cause it feels like for someone who's, who was raised around this kind of chaos, it's, it, it is a monumental task <laughs> to be like, well, just love yourself. Like 
you, what does that even mean? Yes. And it feels so <laughs> like to me, because of my learned helplessness, I would just go to despair. Like, well, that's never going to happen, you know? And yeah. like, I'm never going to know how to do that. And I'm fucked. Um, yeah, but when, but when, but so when I say like started loving myself, what I mean, like there are pieces of that. And one of them is like, I just checked in and I was like, you know what? I actually myself prefer people who are sensitive. Like I like being around those people. So why am I hating on my own sensitivity? Like when I got clear on that, I changed the people around me. And soon I replaced my circle with people who respected where I was because I was respecting where I was. And they were like, yeah, sensitivity is fucking cool and powerful. And like crying doesn't make you stupid, you know, and, and being sensitive by the way. Yeah. It's not a reason to hop off the ride. So, um, a lot started changing when I did that. And lastly, I just want to recommend the book that my therapist recommended to me called Stop Walking on Eggshells. It's a great resource for people, especially if you're just starting out. If you're not sure if someone in your life has BPD, it has kind of a quiz to help you um, acquaint yourself with it and like kind of, yeah, get a framework for like, what is this thing? And, and uh, how do I, how do I deal with this? Like what, what steps do I take? It's really great. So I, so I wanted to put that out there too. Okay. I'm going to wrap up with my stuff there. Liz, how are you doing? Man, you're speaking my language. I have so <laughs> many echo points to this story. And Yay. Yeah, okay. I just, I can relate. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Okay. So I'm super stoked to talk to you about this. Um, because you have this background in your personal life and because your professional bio pretty much nails this kind of work on the head. So I just wanted to read it. Your bio says I combine talk therapy, epigenetic science, astrology, intuition, and energy work to help people rewrite their story of generational trauma and childhood conditioning into an empowering narrative that frees them to live from their authentic soul. And when I read that, I was like, uh, yeah, so that's pretty much exactly what we're talking about here. Childhood conditioning, generational trauma. Yeah, um, right? yeah. So, so yeah, so let's get into it. I have like a thousand questions for you, but I'll, I'll narrow it down. Let's start with this one. It's kind of like a, a basic, a lot of people who have BPD, like I mentioned by nature of the disorder will refuse to get a diagnosis. So that, that said, how do we know, or, you know, can be pretty sure when people have BPD, like what are the defining characteristics? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think I just, I always like to caveat diagnoses in our Western medical framework as, you know, let's just all remember that they are like, they're socially constructed um, and that we've decided to agree on them in this culture as a pathology when they reach a certain like level. Um, and they aren't always seen the same in other cultures. There's a great book about that called crazy like us, which is mm. really fascinating. Look into, um, just how other states of, of mental and emotional being are seen. But, um, you know, that said BPD or what we've decided to call BPD, it's a list of, of characteristics, you know, like you said, of qualities and lumped all together, we've given them this label and, like any diagnosis uh, in 
and the the DSM, which that's used for diagnosing mental illness in our culture in our country, um, it really like you get the diagnosis when you reach a certain level of like disruption to life. Mm-hmm. So. I, you know, like in grad school, we're all reading these things. It's like going to, you know, body medical school. Like you read these things and you're like, oh my God, like I have this and I have that. And <laughs> right. because we, we all have tendencies, these things exist on a spectrum. Um, and so with BPD, I mean, like so much of what you described is just, it's chronic instability and it's rooted in like a fear of abandonment and in that case, it becomes like, it shows up really in relationship, in relationship to your, to themselves and in relationship to other people. So basically you've got like, you've got that, that rage, anger, um, that impulsivity, that emotional extremes. And often that leads to like self-destructive behaviors, whether that's, you know, destroying relationships, or it could be, you know, it kind of, kind of can move into the realm of, of manic stuff where, you know, like overspending or, um, addictions, like you were saying. Um, and, and then you've got like their impulsivity and, um, extreme swings in their relationship to themselves too, right. That self-destructiveness, and that can lead to a lot of self-harm, and suicidal ideation. So, I mean, we've all somewhere like had fear of abandonment. We've all kind of had irrational anger at times, you know, it's, it's about the frequency and the patterns over time and the, the disruptions to life. Right. So like, for instance, my dad, um, and also, I mean, this is the kind of thing where over the years, he was diagnosed with a lot of different things mm. because our diagnoses criteria change. Um, different people see things different ways. You show up different ways at different parts of your life. Right. Um, but the through thread really was about like his inability to feel secure in himself and therefore to be secure in, in how he showed up in life. And so he gambled a lot. He smoked smoked a pipe, which, you know, smelled really good and had a very intellectual air, but was just, you know, Mm self-destructive. And he had a pattern of really, um, never really having a long sustained, you know, close relationship, except me, um, you know, pushing everyone else away. And then, um, a lot of suicidal ideation and he ultimately took his life. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, he's at like one end of the spectrum, um, and you have a lot of different steps in between. Right. So it's a, it's about the severity, you know, and about over time, how chronic and consistent it is. And I love that you brought up that like, yeah, we all, <laughs> you start learning about things and you're like, oh fuck, I think I have this because oh, yeah when I was reading this book, stop walking on eggshells and they were talking, like, I didn't relate to any of the outward symptoms. You know, I'm, I, I don't have the rage. I don't have the, um, addictive behaviors, et cetera. But when they described like what's going on inside a person with BPD and they talked about that deep, deep fear around abandonment, 
and that sort of like despair around it, I was like, oh, fuck, I I feel that way all the time. (laughs) Like, um, and when you and I chatted the other day, you were like, yeah, it's like the difference between anxious attachment style and BPD is like anxious attachment style. You'll feel that intense abandonment, but you don't have the same, um, outward behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that's a helpful way. You're not acting it out as much. You're just turning it all inward on yourself, Mm, you know? And I mean, all of this is really, this is where it comes down to that generational trauma. You know, it's like, it's really rooted in not feeling secure in your developing years. Right. And, you know, for instance, just for my generational story, I think it comes from, you know, my dad feeling really rejected and really criticized and not safe. Like he was bullied by cousins and not protected by his parents and not even like given attention, like kind of emotional neglect and mm-hmm. not kind of definitely. And um, in that way, it's like his developing sense of self, which we all develop in relation to our parents as we grow up was like, I'm, I'm worthless. Like he had no reflection back of who he was as a lovable. And so it being, and so another one of the characteristics of BPD is just this, you know, these chronic feelings of emptiness. And Mm -hmm. there's sort of this sense of like, like a black hole, like there was no amount of reassurance or amount of times I could tell him I loved him and I wouldn't leave. And, you know, that it didn't matter. Right. Like, cause it was just, it was just bottomless. Wow. That reminds me of an experience I had with my mom when I was in my gosh, I might've even been 19, maybe 20. And I had joined a sorority and, uh, I, one of the things like one of our little sorority activities was making, um, photo albums and, uh, or what did they call Is that what they call them where they would like put like drawings in them and stuff and like scrapbooks scrapbooks thank you yes that's what it is <laughs> going to michael's and yes just like yes in the aisles yeah totally yeah um <laughs> uh, yeah oh my god so many sorority trips to michael's um <laughs> and anyway a family friend the sorority had a golf tournament to raise money for something and a family friend had participated in the golf tournament And we had taken a picture together at the golf tournament. And so in my little scrapbook, I had a picture of he and I together with a little thing that was like, thanks for being part of the tournament or whatever fucking thing I wrote. (sighs) I was showing it to my mom and she got so upset and started crying and said like, um, I mean, nothing to you (sighs) have this picture of him, but I'm the one who told you to join a sorority and I don't see my picture. And, um, so, so that's kind of like what you're talking about is like, it it's impossible to fill that hole for them. They will always find ways, um, for, to prove that you don't love them. And Mm -hmm. that's also part of that, like despair that, um, as someone growing, growing up with a parent who has BPD, you experience, because it's like, not only are they modeling despair for you? but then your reality becomes despairing because there's no, there's nothing you can do to fix it Yeah, for them. Yeah. Right. Um, And I wonder, I wonder if your mom, I mean, BPD is like, it's this, it's this, this, this disorder of extremes, right? mm -hmm. Like they can get, you can be like 
people will also be get really intense and really obsessive and like fall in love really fast say mm. in like really you know romantic relationships mm. and then at any perceived you know like say the person wants to this is like kind of the anxious attachment but you know i, I want to be alone tonight just to have some balance oh god you don't love me you've never loved me right so two extremes and so it, as a parent with a child a lot of times that can be you know making the child the center of their world. I don't know if you experienced mm. that, but like, it was a lot of enmeshment and a lot of just like, we're the same, like no one else understands me, but you. I, that is so, that's so fucking amazing that you said that because I remember my mom actually saying to my sister, um, well, I wish I could exactly remember the details, but my sister and I would take turns sleeping with my mom. Uh and she didn't like to sleep alone. She didn't like to sleep alone. We always slept with my mom. And I remember, um, at one point her saying that she wanted me to sleep with her instead of my sister, uh, which I was like, Oh, I even remember thinking like, Oh, that's weird. (laughs) Like, that's not very nice. But then in front of me, she turned to my sister and said, I hope you're not mad. You know, no one in the world understands me the way that you do. And I was like, I'm right here. But also it's like, why are you saying that to a child? She's really like 10. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're trying to get those emotional needs met, right? You have basically an unregulated inner child inside Mm -hmm. and then they're trying to get their needs met from everyone else around them. They've never learned how to get their needs met inside. And so that's kind of that growing up with, with like, neglect and, and, and no sense of self. And then I think when you grow up with, with a parent with BPD, because you get, you get kind of the quote unquote positive side of the extreme that, that like, Oh, you're the, you're the most amazing. You're the center of my world. Like you do get love, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not in the healthiest way. And then it's very confusing because it gets pulled, ripped away and with anger. And so you're like, right. like getting pulled back and forth. I think my, my, my hypothesis is that that might help mitigate those like self-destructive, actually self-destructive behaviors. Right. So you're saying like, I didn't, I don't act out stuff. I don't actually like disrupt my life as much or like destroy relationships or hurt myself. Mm -hmm. Um, but I still feel just as insecure inside. Yes. Well, that's, that's how, (laughs) when I was reading, um, these descriptions of what it feels like to have BPD, I was like, Yeah. Yeah. I relate to this so deeply. Like I, um, yeah, I know that feeling. And what's so interesting is, yeah. When you're talking about the, these experiences that they have of, of, of emotional neglect, that's they in turn, it's like, we were emotionally neglected as well, you know? Yeah. So so it's like that it's like those things that they're so, um, and I don't know if that's maybe part of the narcissism or what, but it's like the one in terms of this enmeshment and this narcissism piece as well, when we were growing up, uh, we knew every detail of my mom's childhood, which was incredibly abusive. Um, by the time I was like five, I knew like every detail and maybe I don't know every detail, but I knew details. I definitely shouldn't have known about, uh, and we would know everything about her dating life. Like 
<laughs> she would be so depressed over a boyfriend and we, and she would tell us about it. And then she would like put on a depressing song and we would all like talk about the song. And this is literally like, I'm like six and my sister is eight. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you were uh, partnerified, you know, I mean, yeah. that's what happens and same. It's like, I don't, part of me is like, he, my dad never had a steady relationship because he never let anyone else be more important than me. Like I was the person mm. I couldn't, you know, as a daughter, as his daughter, maybe I was the least likely person to leave. Like there was a sense of maybe, you know, I can get my security here. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, it sets us up, you know, as the children up for, for a lot of confusion and a lot of searching for our own identity. And like, I think I mean, I've been obsessed. Like people say, like, just be yourself. Like, you know, that's a phrase right. you hear all the time. And like, I have been obsessed with that since I was a kid. Cause I was like, what does that even mean? Totally. Because I don't <laughs> think, because I wasn't given any room really to like be myself. Yeah. Like I was seen as an extension of him, which is that, which is that narcissism and that, yeah. you know, needing to get his needs met. So I think that's part of why my work has taken the shape it is and my own personal journey of just like, what does it mean to be your truest self and be free of all of those inherited patterns and beliefs that, you know, you unconsciously took on because that's what you do as a kid. But like, right. now that you're an adult, like, how do you find your own way? Well, that's perfect because that leads me into one of my next questions, which was, um, what has worked for you in your healing process? Mm, yeah. Well, honestly, I think the turning point was when I stopped talking to my dad. I, mm. I, and it was, it, that was, uh, this was before I went to school to be a therapist. So I was in therapy for many years and there's something, I don't know about you, but like in my family therapy was a thing. My dad was just in and out of it a lot. <laughs> like mm -hmm. he wanted it to help and then he didn't go. And yeah. so there was like, again, those extremes of relationship, but so it was a very familiar place for me. And I finally was doing some long-term work with someone and a lot of like, I remember that was the first time I heard the word individuation and like, mm -hmm. Hey, this is actually like a normal part of your development that you're supposed to go through. And that was just like, blew my mind. Like, Wow. wait, I'm supposed to be able to be my own person. And like, I, you know, and I'm a person. I, yeah. Like, what? I'm not, what? yeah. I'm not just a girl version of my dad like, <laughs> out in the world. I'm like, I'm like laugh crack right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Cause you could relate. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny. The things that now I like are so ingrained in me. I'm like, I remember when they just like, they blew my mind and, um, you know, learned about anxious attachment and attachment styles and it took me years to really believe and get up the courage to say, I can put up this boundary. And, and it took a lot of different attempts. Like, well, I'll try to talk to him less and I'll try to this and I'll try to that. But the thing is, is that he, he had no sense of boundaries and respecting right. them. And so, like you said, you know, you knew all these things, right. And it's like, yeah, I knew all kinds of things. I mean, I was, you know, we were watching movies I shouldn't have watched at a young age. I was, right. you know, part of his life in a way because he had no boundaries and because he wanted someone like close so much. And so just even the idea of boundaries was insane. And of course, with BPD, that's really hard. It's really scary because the, your 
you will, that gaslighting, right? Like you're like, it took me years basically for a therapist to convince me that my needs were healthy and okay. Mm. Because every time I asserted them, it was like the end of the world to him. Right. And I was the worst daughter and I wasn't, you know, loving him and he might as well go kill himself. I mean, there was for me, like the threats, um, around that. I, I heard that my whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's like the, the simplest healthy things feel monumental. Right. (laughs) And And so when you make a decision, when you're like, okay, individuation, I'm fucking on it. Gonna do it. Like, what do you do? What, like, what? Yeah. Well, from, yeah. I mean, in a way it kind of has to be, I mean, this is where I got to. And, and if it's, if you've tried other things and like, you keep getting sucked back into the dynamic and they're not respecting your boundaries. I mean, you have to do something a little more definitive. And, um, I decided I put, I put parameters on it because it was scary to be like, I'm not going to talk to my dad, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so it was like, I'm not going to talk to him for a year. Mm. It got to the point where I was like, I was, you know, pushing 35. And I just felt like I was like, never going to have a relationship or kids Mm. because I had this dynamic with him that was holding me back. Like, I felt like I couldn't leave him. It, I had to stay in his suffering and in, in, in his, um, perspective of the world. Right. right. And like otherwise, cause if I left him, he'd be all alone. And definitely I'd gotten the message message all my life. Like, do not abandon me because right. that was his root fear. And, and yet I realized at a certain point, I was like, I, I'm not going to live, you know, I, honestly, it got to the point where I was like, if I keep this up, like, he will die at some point. Cause he's older than, I mean, presumably he's going to age and, and then I'll be whatever, like 50 and won't have been able to like have the life I want. Right. I kept staying in this dynamic. And like, so it, I, it just, for me, like that anger and that, but the anger, like of like defending myself and like saving my life in a way mm-hmm. got so strong that I was like, I, I, it got over that overpowered my fear. Wow. And okay. So here's, this is so powerful. And what I'm hearing you say is like bound individuation looks like boundaries. It looks Mm -hmm. like prioritizing yourself Mm -hmm. and it looks like, um, getting really honest about what you need and then taking action toward those needs. Yeah. And the thing, one of the things it's like you talked about writing the letter and like saying it right because at some point you have to say it because this is a relationship we're talking right. about to set the boundary and it was saying it saying it with and not feeling like I had to over explain myself because it doesn't the more you give of an explanation the more there is to argue with and the mm. more there is for for them to hook back into so it was and it was a really clear plan ahead of time um, you know, I'm going to say this, I, this is my plan one year. Um, these are my, you know, parameters. I'm going to say it. I'm not going to, I'm just going to say, this is what I need to do for myself and nothing more. And then I'm going to shut the door, like literally, because there is a codependency here, you know, like I was just as hooked in and needing this dynamic in a way, because it's what I was used to. Right. So I had to just say, I don't, you know, send 
emails to a filter or whatever, you know, like don't even, don't even look. And, um, oh, it was crazy. And also that was the year I went back to grad school. I met my partner. I traveled in Europe. Mm -hmm. I like, I mean, everything changed. It was such a pivotal opening. Wow. That's huge. Um, And it, you know, it's just not a coincidence, right? (laughs) Yeah, totally. So, wow. This is, um, I mean, this is so, it was so brave. That was so brave. And, um, that bravery kind of like, I think is a bridge to my next question, because my next question is about walking on eggshells and, um, you know, for me being raised around all of this rage, I, I had this trauma response of walking on eggshells where it was like, it wasn't even like bravery was an option for me. And it was like being, you know, oh, having yeah. the courage to like, uh-uh. <laughs> like, now when you're a kid, you're no. surviving. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so yeah, so it was a big trauma response for me, this walking on eggshells from, from interacting with these for people sure. and their inner unpredictable rage. And I know that for a lot of other people too, who grew up with BPD parents that translates to codependence, which you kind of talked about a second ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those who kind of experience BPD in, in loved ones later in life, it can look more like self-doubt or anxiety because, um, they're constantly being told that actually they're wrong or whatever. But my question is, what does it look like to course correct this behavior of walking on eggshells? Mm, such a good question. And it's, it, I think this is sort of like that beginning point. Like you might start doing this before you set boundaries or, you know, make a change like as dramatic as I did. Um, but that walking on eggshells, basically you're, you're living in a, in this, um, chaotic environment. And so you learn that you, to survive, you need to be hypervigilant, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, what's, that's, what's tuning your nervous system to be really sensitive. You're like, Ooh, I can tell with like, just a, a shade on my mom's face, like, oops, totally. she's going down the mood, you know, and like, Oh, I better, you know? Yeah. Like, so you you tuned in and I tuned in and and anyone living in this kind of um, emotionally or physically chaotic environment is you're going to tune into the external world and you're going to just, you forget, like you don't even develop like your inner sense. Right. Right. Because you're constantly looking outside for the signals. Am I safe? How to be? What do I need to do right now? Like, and that's just, that's, we all need to survive the environment we're in as we're growing up. So, I mean, so there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, like you said, like that's given you the gift of sensitivity. And it's usually that's what happens is we we're sent, we're sensitive people, we're empathetic people, you know, and those are amazing qualities, but to balance that out, like you've got to start doing the work to reconnect with your inner senses. Mm. And I mean, that can be as simple as like, like, you know, um, like eating when you're hungry. I, I mean, it sounds Oh my so God, simple, you're so, no, you're so right. It's like, I learned to just like tell myself whatever I just felt. And like I used, I learned to use my mind to say, well, you don't need that right now or don't do that right now or whatever, you know? And so it's like, you got to like 
drop out of your head and get into your body and do what your senses are telling you and start Mm. to, you know, and also part of doing that, I think is at first eliminating a lot of the noise. So you might, you know, like it might help to, to simplify like whatever, whatever you're taking in, like media, social media, um, social, like, you know, like just notice, right? Like notice the things that bring out that kind of anxiety or those feelings that are familiar of hypervigilance and maybe start to like put those aside for now and like focus on the things that or the environments or the people where you can just feel really like sinking into your body and like just feeling your insides more. (laughs) Isn't that so wild? Yeah. Like I think a huge piece of this is that you're so outside of yourself. You learn to live outside of yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah. So anything, like anything that's going to get you back in your body, right? Like you talked about dissociating. Heck yeah. Like I don't, I was not connected to my body. It was all in my head. Right. And so like hiking, being in nature, yoga. I mean, those were some of the things when I started putting those into my life regularly that I was like, Oh, like, this is me being safe in my body, listening to myself. I can rely on myself, you know? Yeah. And another part of that, I think is learning to parent yourself, Yep, which is really hard to do when you just didn't have, um, models, (laughs) parenting modeled to you, you know, but because you don't realize that part of parenting is like someone being really attuned to your needs. It's just that like, yeah, and in fact, it was the reverse. The child was really attuned to the parents' needs instead of the parent being attuned to the child, which is like wrong. Like that's not how it goes. And so now as adults, we have to learn to be that person attuned to our own needs and be like, am I hungry? Do I like this job? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do I have to pee right now? Why don't you just go pee? Stop holding it. What's wrong? You know, like, yeah, do I, I tell people sometimes to start really that simple and like, maybe take a day or two where like, you just do exactly what your body says it needs when you need it. Don't wait. Don't, you know, and just, you'll start to develop this trust in yourself. And it's like, I think the mistake, mistake or whatever, like the pattern that we might continue into adulthood that doesn't serve us is that we look for that parenting or that security or to get our needs met by other people. We keep looking outside right? in those relationships, you know? And so I feel like I dated all these guys that like, they were who I wanted to be. I didn't even like them. I just Uh, like thought they were going to make me who I wanted to be. Oh my God. Wait. Whoa. (laughs) I just had so many guys flash before me. Ah! I think what I, I just put it together. I was like, God, these guys are such dicks, but I'm realizing, I think what consistently pulled me toward them was they were so, they did whatever the fuck they want. I mean, they were selfish, which like, isn't, it's like not really what I want, but, but, but to balance you out, right. Right. So much. You didn't have that so much that. Yeah. Right. Like I was so, um, self-sacrificing that I was drawn to these selfish dudes. Cause I was like, I wish I knew how to just like tell someone like, 
Like I had a guy one time be like, Hey, I, I really like this other girl, but I don't know if it's going to work, work out with her. So could you just wait? Oh God. <laughs> You just, just, oh my God. like what are you talking about uh but like the audacity but like I never had the audacity you know what I mean so right. I I was that guy took me like 10 years to get over I think um yeah you that is such an amazing and beautiful point that we're drawn to people who balance when you're coming from codependence and like I don't matter you're going towards people who are like I'm the only person in the room who matters yeah. To try to like balance it. Wow. That is fucking fascinating. And then, I mean, this is how we recreate patterns like generationally. And, and like, so it's, this, it's so, oh, it's so incredible to do the healing work. And I mean, I, I, I really like to reframe. I think that sometimes, especially for anyone like coming out of these um, codependent or enmeshed relationships with family where they're like, you, you need to stay like them. Or, I mean, a lot of us have that stay loyal to them. Don't rock the boat. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you don't love me unless you're like me. It's like, look, I'm not, I'm not hurting you by healing myself. In fact, I mean, from a spiritual perspective, and if you talk to ancestral healers or anything, it's like, if I heal myself, I'm healing the ancestors that came before me. I'm healing the line before, and I'm definitely healing. You know, my son is almost four. It's like, I'm definitely healing for him. Right. You know? And so, but it's not, it's also not disloyal to my dad to heal, you know? Yeah. Yes. You can do the healing that they weren't able to do. Like I'm continuing the story that he wasn't able to do. And the reality is that he, he healed stuff from his parents. He, he did make progress, right? (laughs) you know? And then, so I have to take take that progress and like take it a step further. Like that's honoring him. Yeah. Oh my God. I love, I've, I've loved this conversation so much, Liz. This is like, ah, this is so, um, healing for me and me too. I've learned a ton from you. Where can people find you if they, if they want to connect? Yeah. Um, just my website, lizhummer.com. And, um, yeah, I do like single astrology readings. I've been doing a lot, uh, more with that therapeutic astrology and then longer term, you know, counseling work to really delve into that, like lineage, generational stuff you're carrying beliefs and, um, and then tuning into your body somatically and energetically to, to find your way forward. Amazing. I love, I, I, I adore you. I think this conversation has been so wonderful. Thank you so, so, so much for coming on. And, um, and you can find me at Remy's on Insta, R-E-M-E-E-Z. Eventually I'll make probably an account for the pod, but I haven't done it yet. So in the meantime, you can find me at Remy's and, uh, y'all, uh, clean up your beer cans and enjoy the party, baby. Bye. Bye.